1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 28 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday the 14th of August. First, I'll be talking to Dean Foley, the founder of Australia's first focused startup accelerator, Barrier And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslak about the state of the Australian economy and what's needed to get us up and running again. But now, let's talk to
2: Dean Foley. Uh, the Indigenous accelerator, how did it start? Time flies when you're having fun. But started three years ago in uh, April 2017, and and how it all got up and running is I was in the Air Force. I served for five years, and uh, a friend dropped a book on my desk, which Dad brought Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, and that was the first time I read a book on business entrepreneurship, and it was a real eye opener on you know what you can achieve in business and and that self-determination and, um, yeah, really inspired me to leave my job and go try and learn, you know, how to run and grow businesses, and so I moved from Canberra up to Brisbane, and and then when I was there, I noticed, in my opinion, there wasn't, you know, too much going on in the Indigenous entrepreneurship space, and I got invited to Australia's Health Startup Weekend through iLab, which is the University of Queensland Accelerator. Went to that, thought it was pretty cool, and thought, you know, why not have a, an Indigenous themed uh, Startup Weekend and end up running the world's first, Australia's first Indigenous Startup Weekend. Start-up weekend. And then from that, and, and then talking to the Indigenous entrepreneurs, there, I knew, knew there needed to be more done. And so started reaching out to Accelerator. Uh, business accelerator program to Australia and Slingshot got back to me, saw the value in it, and wanted to help me run one. So I ended up running the, the world's first Indigenous accelerator program end of uh, 2016, and then yeah, a couple months later, got help from a law firm called Clayton Utz to help me incorporate and get charity status, and that's where it all began.
1: That's quite extraordinary. Now, uh, how big is the Indigenous
2: entrepreneurial community? It's growing. I think it's one of the you know fastest growing demographics in Australian business. I mean, it's it's now around about over eight thousand Indigenous businesses, more than there was a decade ago. So uh, yes, yeah, supposedly it's the fastest growing rate, um, you know, compared to non-Indigenous entrepreneurship. However, you know, because of uh, disadvantage. and Everything that's happened over the last 200 years, um, uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs are still three or four times less likely to be self-employed um, than the national average. Uh, but, yeah, there's heaps of good stuff happening, increased Indigenous entrepreneurship, and then also with uh, land rights and all that kind of stuff coming in, supposedly in the past 20 years, approximately 40% of Australia's landmass has been returned to Indigenous Control, which is obviously helping create assets and wealth in the community to try and combat um, all the poverty and the massive disparity gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people.
1: So, what kind of Indigenous businesses are we seeing?
2: A range, you know, non-Indigenous business startup ecosystem. There's quite a range of different businesses, which might be surprising to you know some people who might think indigenous entrepreneurs, probably, you know, agriculture, land-based or or art, artwork and paintings and all that kind of stuff. But in our last accelerator program, we had um, like a cybersecurity business. Uh, he was turning over a couple hundred thousand consulting and then he was working on a digital product, which is how I got into our program. Also, there was a, another group at the start where they were looking to use your smartphone camera to take pictures of your teeth for diagnosis, early diagnosis of your teeth. yet you to try and, you know, diagnose the problems but instead of, you know, going directly to a doctor to look at using, you know, algorithms and that kind of stuff. And, and then we had yeah, a more traditional-based business. Uh, she was trying to sell Indigenous fashion design online. Yeah, a whole, whole range of um, different, you know, business ideas and I think a, a lot of them are trying to focus, you know, for the, the broader community and market their products instead of, you know, just trying to sell to other Indigenous people.
1: I'd imagine finance would be quite a major issue for Indigenous businesses uh, getting funding. Mm. How how do you deal with that?
2: Uh, just like everybody else, you know, you know, everybody else who hasn't got a silver spoon kind of thing you know it's just daily daily grind you know in the trenches just trying to get traction starting small and then you know trying to grow big from that so I mean yeah most indigenous people still a massive disparity gap and a lot of indigenous people too they haven't got intergenerational wealth so you know we can't, we can't borrow off our parents because they've got no money or no you know they don't own their house that kind of stuff so yeah, it's just you know start small and go from there.
1: And of course, they wouldn't have closer relationships with the banks <laughs> that a lot of non-indigenous businesses would have.
2: No, and that's because you know obviously banks, you know they're a bit of a shipwreck now. But banks generally a lot they make a lot most I think a lot of their money from mortgages, you know housing and you know to for any Australian to get a, a, a business loan through them, you know you, you need to have collateral. Uh, because they're very risk averse in entrepreneurship in general and uh, maybe more so with indigenous entrepreneurship because of you know, stereotypes and, and that kind of stuff. So you know, indigenous entrepreneurs may be perceived as more risky.
1: What are the what would be the key differences between indigenous businesses, indigenous startups and non indigenous startups? I'd imagine they would be very different. They're basically
2: this you know, they're basically the same. Still working through the same startup mythology, you know, build, test, and and you know, start off small and go big kind of thing um, for most of them. So a lot of similarities. I think um, probably the biggest difference would probably go down to you know, indigenous entrepreneurship versus non-indigenous entrepreneurship. I think there's a, a difference there and how they should operate, um, which some of them don't, but. You know, like culture, it's to phrase it to make people kind of understand that there is a difference. It'll be like, you know, social entrepreneurship compared to normal entrepreneurship. You know, social entrepreneurship, um, it's more community focused. You know, the profits go back into our running programs and making an impact. With uh, the commercial businesses, generally speaking, you know, you're there to make money. You know, make money for the shareholders and that kind of stuff. So, different, different focuses. And that's what I see as the differences between Indigenous and non Indigenous entrepreneurship. Indigenous entrepreneurships uh, should be operating from a, a cultural, cultural value perspective, like reciprocity respect. And, you know, each, <laughs> there's a couple of hundred uh, different tribes, Aboriginal communities across Australia. So, you know, they vary a bit uh, with their, their cultural values. Um, but, yeah, just, yeah, that's it. That's basically the difference you know, how they operate. I think Indigenous entrep- entrepreneurship is, you know, probably uh, very similar to social entrepreneurship, although, you know, arguably Indigenous entrepreneurship has been around for a lot longer.
1: Sure, and uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs would be, therefore, much more community-focused. Uh, yeah, where they the profits, sh- where the profits go yeah, back into the community?
2: Yeah, they should be, you know, it's, and that's, I think one of the challenges at the moment, I mean, you've got the indigenous procurement uh, procurement strategy where they're looking to get like supposedly 3% of government contracts, federal contracts to indigenous uh, businesses. Uh, But there's a question mark over that because there's a few problems at the moment with like black cladding where like a non-indigenous business, normally one of the, the big corporate businesses will find an indigenous partner and you know, claim it's an Indigenous business, but all the profits and all that, you know, just basically go back to the owners. You know, it's not operating like an Indigenous business. So Indigenous entrepreneurs' businesses are operating as they should be um, if they're going to call themselves that and, you know, try and get government contracts because they're Indigenous. But from what I've seen, it, it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. You know, people, some people with Indigenous heritage, you know, just operate. <laughs> Like a Western business, you know, but fly the flag to win contracts and that kind of stuff. So, which is unfortunate because, you know, the Indigenous Business Strategy was created to help close the disparity gap. Because at the time, Indigenous Indigenous businesses were, were more likely to employ Indigenous people. So, if they're not operating like an Indigenous business and having that community focus and impact. What's What's the point of them getting a competitive advantage over non Indigenous Australian businesses? I don't think. I don't think there should be any competitive advantage if they're not operating an Indigenous entrepreneurial business.
1: Of course, there would be an enormous overseas market for Indigenous businesses, wouldn't there?
2: Yeah, Indigenous artwork is massive. And obviously they've got their own problems with, you know, like fake art and that kind of fake Indigenous art and that kind of stuff. But um, that's, you know, that's potentially a big revenue generator. There's a lot of interest for Indigenous art. It's grown in Australia. You know, it's it's massive... Overseas, and for a lot of remote and rural communities, so you know, out in the out in the bush, where you know there's hardly any jobs, and you know there's not even supermarkets like Coles or Woolworths. Uh, a big income generator is the art art industry. So yeah, it's massive, and yeah, hopefully there's an opportunity there uh, to for Indigenous artists to, to make more money and and stay in their communities. And, yeah, have jobs.
1: And one last question. Now, Baramayal is, the, is it actually a word for black swan, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. For me, it was, you know, when uh, Europeans came over here, uh, they they only knew a white swan before they came over here, because black swans are native to Australia. So, you know, it's for me, uh, it was kind of when I was left the Air Force trying to get into business and... And then started talking about indigenous entrepreneurship. A lot of business people especially really successful ones are so like Indigenous entrepreneurs, like, you know, what the hell's that? <laughs> like, you know, that most people haven't got like an indigenous friend or let alone, you know, know an Indigenous business owner. So it's a bit of a shock to them and yeah, so that's why I thought, you know, it'd be good to have a, a symbol to recognize that, you know, indigenous entrepreneurs actually do exist, and, you know, we can build uh, successful businesses like anybody else.
1: Well, Dean, it's been fascinating talking to you and wishing Barramiel all the best. Thank you. Thanks, for And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Okay, well, Saul, we've had some very ugly figures for the economy from the government the other week, and uh, we've got a deficit that's not seen since wartime, but debt is rising. Debt's at an extraordinary level, and uh, unemployment's going to be at at least 9.25% and possibly more. We're looking at double-digit unemployment. There's been many talks of this being the COVID depression as opposed to the COVID recession. Uh, What's your view about it? Well, Leon, I
0: think some of those expressions are unduly alarmist. Uh, Certainly, there's no denying that this is the most severe downturn the Australian economy has experienced since the Great Depression of the 1930s. But the Great Depression of the 1930s went on for the best part of five years, and ultimately wasn't finally solved until the great fiscal stimulus that we know from history as World War II, and the unemployment rates in the Great Depression peaked at over 30%. Now, this downturn, this severe recession, as I think you can call it, is not going to last as long, nor will it be as deep nor will the eventual solutions be as dramatic as they were to the Great Depression, but they're certainly going to set post-war records. At one stage, it was hoped that the June quarter, which is now over, which Treasury said would likely see the economy contract by 7% would mark the formal end of the recession. That's now been thrown into doubt by the lockdowns that we've seen Institute in Victoria, which accounts for almost a quarter of the national economy. But I would like to think that provided there are no further outbreaks of the sort that we're now seeing in Victoria, that we could see a return to positive growth, if not in the December quarter of this year, then in the first quarter of next year. The unemployment rate was expected by the government to peak at about 9.5% in the December quarter. although. In reality, the unemployment rate has effectively been up over fourteen percent in April and May, if we measured it the way the US and Canada do by counting people who, though still on their books of the books of their employers, actually weren't working any hours, as well as the people who've dropped out of the labour force since the beginning of the pandemic because they haven't seen any point in looking for work or haven't been allowed to. So 9.5% is the official rate of unemployment would probably represent some improvement from the true situation towards the end of the June quarter. Uh, Clearly, the government will need to do more to ensure not only that there aren't any further outbreaks and that people experiencing lockdowns receive the appropriate level of support, but the government will need to do more than that in order to underwrite a sustainable recovery. That will certainly see us ending up with the highest levels of public debt we've had relative to the size of our economy since the years immediately after World War II. But with interest rates at record lows, the government isn't going to have any difficulty servicing that debt. It's certainly not having any difficulty getting investors to lend it money. Indeed, since the beginning of March, the federal government has received offers to lend it three and a half times as much as they've actually needed to borrow so while there'll come a time for needing to think about how we start to begin paying back this debt that time's a long way away and we'd be doing ourselves unnecessary damage if we put that at the top of our immediate concerns.
1: Okay okay but I mean you've got a budget coming up in October and uh, this happens also to coincide with the Victorian lockdown coming to an end in September which is going to max which is which will probably concentrate the mind of a treasurer what do you see coming out of the budget? Well
0: what I hope to see is additional measures that will require the government to take on more debt than it flagged in the treasurer's statement of 23rd July that are designed not only to assist businesses and individuals cope with what's clearly going to be a longer downturn in economic activity than was originally envisaged way back in March, and a more severe downturn than the government had flagged in the treasurer's statement of last month. But also, I think we need to see measures that are going to help the transition to an economy that is necessarily going to be different in some important respect from what it was before March. Now, the only measure the government's really flagged so far is bringing forward the tax cuts that are currently legislated to take effect from the 1st of July 22 and the 1st of July 24. I accept, as the Treasurer argues, that doing that, will put more money in people's pockets, and they may in turn choose to spend some of it, which would boost demand. But in my view, in these sort of circumstances, there are more effective ways of boosting demand and creating jobs for the same amount of money than cutting taxes. Because most of the taxes are paid by people in the upper half of the income distribution. It's very hard to cut taxes in a way that don't disproportionately benefit people in the upper half of the income distribution. And it's a fact of life that if you do that, they're inevitably going to use some of those tax cuts to save or to pay down debt, which is perfectly rational for them. But in turn means that those dollars aren't flowing out into the economy to support jobs and boost demand. So a better way of applying the same amount of dollars would be through additional infrastructure spending, particularly on areas like social housing, which meet a real pressing need, where there's not too much import content, and where it can be spread much more broadly around the country than big-ticket, transport infrastructure programs or making additional income payments to people whose incomes are too low for them to benefit from income tax cuts and while that might require the government to make a bit of an ideological leap it's to their credit that they've been prepared to do that several times already in response to the critical situation that Australia has faced.
1: Uh, right okay what about uh microeconomic reforms such as we saw in the 80s? Well, I think there'll be a need,
0: well, there'll certainly be a need for structural and other reforms designed to boost productivity, because particularly in the likely absence of the tailwind from population growth that had accounted for almost three quarters of the economic growth that Australia had recorded over the five years prior to the onset of the pandemic, unless we can boost productivity growth significantly, we're going to struggle to generate the rates of economic growth that we will need in order to get unemployment down from wherever it ends up peaking, whether that's 9% or more, down to levels that we regard as socially acceptable, such as 5% or even lower than that. Now, boosting productivity, microeconomic reform, isn't going to be a matter of repeating the measures that were undertaken during the 1980s and 90s, which were primarily about deregulation, privatization, and reducing tariffs. Um, There's not much left for governments to privatize there's not a lot of further deregulation that needs to be done. Australia's product markets are in most cases less regulated than a majority of OECD countries. And so too is our labor market. And it's not obvious from looking at labor markets that are more deregulated than ours, such as the United States, that there are many things that we can usefully copy from them. I think rather the agenda for structural reform ought to take a lot from the Productivity Commission's 2017 report, Shifting the Dial, which was about structural reforms in areas like education and health that weren't really much of a focus of productivity lifting agendas in the 80s and 90s. It was about things like how we charge for the use of transport infrastructure, and particularly roads. It was about reform of state taxes in particular, where New South Wales seems to be wanting to show a lead. But as David Fody himself observed in his advice to the New South Wales government, and as the Victorian Treasurer, as I think correctly noted, uh, states need to work together In pursuit of tax reform rather than all go off down their own separate tracks. And then I think there's a whole agenda of other things that we need to think about in the post COVID world, including, for example, how Australia responds to the ongoing risks posed by climate change, which we paid a lot of attention to during the bushfire season, but since then that's perhaps receded from people's memories. Uh, We've got to think about whether we have become more dependent on China, both as a destination for exports, and as a source of imports, then makes sense in a geostrategic environment where our relationship with China has become much more problematic. And we also have to contend with the likely reality that our fourth and fifth biggest exports namely tourism and international education are going to struggle to return to pre-pandemic levels for much longer than the rest of the economy if indeed they ever get back to there.
1: So any changes the government needs to bring in needs to take into account the post-COVID economy and how that will look.
0: That's right. I mean, to use a phrase that the Prime Minister was fond of in the early stages of the pandemic, where he used to talk about building a bridge to the other side of the shutdown, which at the time he thought might not be until September. What the government now needs to be thinking about is building bridges from a recovery that will inevitably be gradual and cautious, to the post-COVID world, which I think is becoming increasingly clear, is going to look rather different in some important respects from the economy and the world that we've become familiar with uh, as recently as March of this year.
1: Well, that will be a very interesting political question for the government, won't it?
0: Yes, it will. And as I say, I give the government credit for being prepared to ditch political shibboleths that had been important to it since it came to office, if not before. Uh, If they hadn't been prepared to do that, we'd be in a much more dire situation than we had been, uh, than we actually are now. I think the Treasurer has been right to say that his government is not going to be one of austerity, that is of slashing government spending or increasing taxation out of an undue focus on the budget balance. up to a point, I can understand what I think he meaning to say when he was evoking the memories of Thatcher and Reagan, uh, although they are remembered today for, among other things, fiscal austerity, uh, they also pursued policies that directly or indirectly help to boost productivity and that's something that I think the government needs to think about not just in the forthcoming budget because it's not only about budgetary measures and state governments have to be involved and as I think the government recognizes other parts of the community such as the trade union movement community and social groups and the business community need to be on board if the changes that are ultimately deemed necessary are to be widely accepted, which they need to be in order to be capable of successful implementation.
1: Well that'll be fascinating to watch and it will require some bipartisan support I suspect. I think that's right.
0: Um, I've always thought that one of John Howard's greatest services to the nation was not so much anything he did as Prime Minister, and I don't mean to belittle things he did as Prime Minister, but that when he was opposition leader He was prepared to support things that the Hawke government was doing that he knew would be good for the economy and to eschew the opportunity to take political advantage of that by opposing reforms that were in the short term, at least unpopular. And I hope that's something that the Labor Party in opposition federally and oppositions around the states and territories, whatever their political complexion might be, uh, would be prepared to go along with as well.
1: Well, Saul Eslake, that'll be fascinating to watch. And thank you very much for your insights. That's been a pleasure, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, McDonald's is suing Steve Easterbrook, a former chief executive. The fast food chain alleges that Mr Eastbrook lied to the board about sexual affairs he'd had with three employees and that he approved a SOC grant to one of those employees worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. McDonald's, which agreed to dismiss Mr Easterbrook in November without cause, wants to recover the $40 million-odd severance package it had awarded him. According to the lawsuit, new evidence shows that, in addition to physical sexual relationships with three employees in the year before his termination, he was in the midst of one when he was fired and he was knowingly untruthful with investigators. Evidence against Easterbrook, MacDonald said, consisted of dozens of nude, partially nude or sexually explicit photographs and videos of various women, including photographs of these company employees, that Easterbrook had sent as attachments to messages from his company email account to his personal email account. The company said the emails were sent in late 2018 and early 2019. During the investigation, the company alleges, Easterbrook claimed that the relationship over which he was dismissed consisted only of texting and video calls, and he assured the company that he had no other intimate relationships with employees. And the NAB business survey shows the pandemic is hitting the economy. Business confidence dropped by 14 points to minus 14 in July, overshadowing the eight-point improvement in conditions. New South Wales and Victoria experienced the sharpest falls in confidence, and confidence declined across all industries. The survey, taken from J- July 22 to 31, when Stage 4 lockdowns were introduced in Melbourne, showed confidence declines across all industries. Confidence is now weakest in the retail and construction sectors. The sharpest declines in confidence geographically were in New South Wales and Victoria, and a more modest decline in Queensland. Confidence is now negative in all states except Western Australia and Tasmania. Retail and wholesale trade saw the strongest pickup in conditions as restrictions had eased across the country, allowing consumers to return to spending record amounts of government stimulus. But NAB Chief Economist Alan Oster cautioned that the bounce-back in business condition could just be a reflection of the activity coming off a low base. An Australian labour market recovery stagnated throughout June and July, with business payrolls broadly unchanged throughout that period. This partly reflects Victoria's second lockdown, which has already led to considerable job losses. Business payrolls are tracking 4.5% below their level in mid-March. Payrolls in Victoria are tracking 6.7% below their level in mid-March, well below the national average of minus 4.5%, having deteriorated by almost 2% since mid-June. With Stage 4 restrictions now in effect, I anticipate further job losses across the state, particularly in vulnerable sectors such as hospitality and retail. Recovery won't be possible until restrictions are eased. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index, appointed to future retail spending, dropped 2.4% to its lowest level since late April. Not surprisingly, confidence is weakest in Melbourne. ANZ economist David Plank said, "The downturn in confidence is now longer than the six weeks of continuous decline during the first wave in February and March." And the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment fell 9.5% to 79.5 in August from 87.9 in July. Australian wages growth saw wages rise just 0.2% in the June quarter 2020 and 1.8% through the year, according to figures released today by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. This was the lowest annual growth in wages in the 27-year history of the Wages Price Index. The June 2020 quarter was the first full period in which COVID-19 social and business restrictions were captured in the WPI. The June 2020 quarter rise was mainly in the public sector, up 0.6%. Private sector wage growth eased to 0.1% as businesses adjusted to changes in the Australian economy. And Australia's biggest employer group has warned Australia is now a two-speed economy and more jobs will be lost in Victoria's critical retail sector if a dollar is cut back before the critical Christmas trading period. Australian Retail Association Chief Executive Paul Zara has warned more retail jobs will go if there's a reduction in JobSeeker at the end of this year, with a coronavirus supplement worth $550 a fortnight due to be cut back to $250 in September. The supplement has effectively doubled the unemployment benefit and is given to 2.2 million people, including those on youth allowance. It is not guaranteed beyond December. The proportion of joblessness is also likely to rise above 10% by the end of the year due to the shutdowns in Melbourne to limit the spread of the virus. But the $325 billion sector's lobby group boss warned reductions in spending on services and goods due to a reduction of government support could hit retail hard. And one in three Australian adults, or 6.3 million people, had received a special government handout by May and close to half of all adult Tasmanians, new analysis of household survey data by the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows. Adding to savings and paying household bills was the most commonly cited primary use for the stimulus payments, at 29% and 28% of respondents respectively, the ABS report said. The next most common use of government support was to buy food and non-alcoholic drinks, at 12%. The Morrison government announced a series of emergency income support measures in March and April to help cushion the blow from the coronavirus pandemic and the associated shutdowns. Among those measures was a $750 household payment, a cash flow boost for small and medium-sized businesses, and the JobKeeper wage subsidy program. Women were more likely to have received payments than men, at 37% versus 27%, the ABS reports showed. Around 4 in 10 Australians without a qualification beyond secondary schooling said they'd received support against a little over a quarter of those with a higher qualification. And the federal government has raised the prospect of spending more on income support if needed to deal with the second wave of the pandemic, as Labor warns cuts to the dole would rip millions of dollars out of the retail sector. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann reaffirmed plans for the JobKeeper wage subsidy to start scaling back from September, but left the door open for extensions to the scheme if the pandemic worsens. And millions of Aussies scrambled to access this super early, but it could end up being a huge financial mistake. Under the super early release scheme, which was introduced to help Aussies through the coronavirus crisis, eligible Australians were able to grab $10,000 from their super last financial year and a further $10,000 in 2020-21 as a result of the coronavirus crisis. But the ATO has recently announced a new pilot program, which is auditing a select number of Aussies who have cashed out their super to discuss who was actually eligible and who wasn't h r Block Director of Tax Communications Mark Chapman said if a large number were found to have broken the rules, then it was highly likely the ATO would roll out the audit on a much larger scale, increasing the risk of being penalised. The ATO recently confirmed to NCA Newswire that fund members who lodged two applications for early withdrawals without meeting the scheme's retirement requirements could face separate financial penalties of $12,600 on each respective claim, meaning double-dippers, could be stung by a maximum penalty of $25,200. And finance and industry heavyweights, including the big banks and major corporations, are urging the federal government to invest in health, education, clean energy and urban infrastructure to help the economy recover from the coronavirus pandemic. A letter with 48 signatories was sent to the Prime Minister on Monday calling for sustainable investments in policies driving health care, affordable housing, public transport, livable cities, education and low-emissions energy generation. The letter was organised by the United Nations affiliate Global Compact Network Australia, which said recovery policies should be consistent with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, to which the federal government has committed on the international and domestic fronts. Signatories to the level to Mr Morrison include the ASFI, which has representatives from NAB and Westpac on its steering committee, plus Optus, Sunrise, Nestle Australia, Konica Minolta Australia, Ikea Australia, World Vision and the Chartered Accountants ANZ. And the tech company Atlassian, has informed its employees that they are free to work from home forever. The Australian-bred tech company has usurped other tech companies like Google and Facebook, who amid the pandemic recently declared staff can remain remote, remote through at least the middle of 2021. We will seek out amazing diverse talent unbounded by the physical footprint of our office, Atlassian said in a blog post, contending that the move makes a company unencumbered by geographic and commuting limitations when seeking to source talent. And the profit reporting season is back, and COVID-19 has hammered some profits. Commonwealth Bank has revealed the, the damage of a coronavirus crisis, announcing an 11.3% drop in full-year cash profit to $7.3 billion as it ramped up provisions against loan losses. Transurban's earnings fell 6.4% to $1.88 billion due to the impact of COVID-19 on daily traffic. Transurban said the numbers of cars using its roads would remain sensitive to government restrictions, as a toll road group swung to an $111 million annual net loss after traffic fell due to COVID-19. Sydney Airport will raise $2 billion in equity to stay liquid through the COVID-19 pandemic, after reporting a $51.8 million interim loss. GPT Group has reported a $519.1 million loss for the first half of the year, with a $711.3 million fall in property valuations weighing heavily on the group. Seek Group has reported full-year earnings EBITDA of $414.9 million, down 9% on 2019, and a net loss of $111.7 million, which compared to a profit of $180.3 million last year. Downer reported a financial year 2020 net loss of $155.7 million compared to a profit of $276.3 million a year ago. Online education group Janison reported a full year net loss of $2.17 million on sales of $21.8 million. SCA Property Group's profit has fallen 22% through the 2020 financial year to $85.5 million, with a COVID-19 earnings impact of $20.5 million and a decrease in property valuations of $87.9 million, taking a hit on the company. Challenger swung to a full-year net loss of $416 million from a profit of $307.8 million a year ago. Coronado Global Resources has reported a net loss of US $123.2 million, compared to $172.3 million in the first half of the year, with earnings slumping more than 90% on the back of lower volumes and lower prices. Fletcher Building announced a heavy full-year loss of New Zealand $196 million after bringing forward its results announcement by more than a week, with the bottom line decimated by one-offs of New Zealand $276 million because of mass redundancies and COVID-19 fallout. Dental business aggregator 1,300 Smiles reported a net profit down 8% to $7.1 million on sales down 3% to $57.1 Mbn company paid Telstra and a record $2.414 billion in the 2020 financial year, bringing the company's total loss for the year before interest and tax to $3.778 billion. Horizon said the COVID-19 pandemic has had no material impact on the rail group's operations after delivering a 28% rise in annual net profits to $605 million. Kogan.com gross sales grew more than 110% year-on-year, while gross profit grew more than 160% year-on-year, lifting adjusting earnings above $10 million. Adairs reported financial year 2020 profit after tax took $35.3 million, a rise of 19% from a year ago. Recon delivered a one point five percent increase in first half profit to five point three million as the workflow solutions provider unveiled a merger of its legal group with US starter ZebraWorks. James Hardy industry has guided to a full year adjusted net operating profit of between US three hundred and thirty million to US three hundred ninety million after delivering a flat first quarter result. The building materials provider said fourth quarter adjusted net operating profit after tax was US $89.3 million, which was in line with the same time as last year. Charter Hall Social Infrastructure, REIT, has increased its profit by 25% to $85.9 million in the 2020 financial year. Magellan Financial Group reported 25% growth in management fees and a 3% drop in performance fees, defying volatile markets to grow funds under management by 26%. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Chris Ballas, who runs Australian red meat company Proveneer, which has been granted a licence by the Victorian Food Safety Authority PrimeSafe to operate a vehicle-based abattoir, a first for Victoria. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Z, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at
2: uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues